Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Changes, I'm Annie McManus. Hello folks, this week's guest is Mark Ronson, a seven-time Grammy Award winning producer who has been instrumental to many of your favourite artists' careers. People like Amy Winehouse, Lily Allen, Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus, you know, just some massive pop stars. Um, He's worked with all of those, including people like Queens of the Stone Age, Bruno Mars, who he collaborated with for the single Uptown Funk. That song became one of the most best-selling singles of all time and won awards such as British Single of the Year at the 2015 Brit Awards and Record of the Year at the 2016 Grammy Awards. In 2018, he also received an Oscar, a Golden Globe and a Grammy Award for co-writing the song Shallow, performed by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper for the film A Star Is Born. Mark was born in London but raised in New York City from the age of eight after his parents divorced. He's the son of Lawrence Ronson, a music manager from one of Britain's wealthiest families, and the writer and socialite Anne Dexter Jones. They were well known for throwing incredible parties. His stepdad is guitarist Mick Jones from the band Foreigner, you know, I Wanna Know What Love Is, or Cold As Ice, Um, so many hits, that band. So it's not really surprising then that Mark has made a career in music. In the 90s, he became a well-known DJ in the New York hip-hop party scene and started to produce music after. The rest is history. Mark is now married to his second wife, Grace Gummer, Meryl Streep's daughter, and he lives in New York City. He is someone who I've interviewed so many times over the years, but the interviews have always been mainly centred around, you know, certain songs or albums that he's promoting at the time. So it was a real luxury to be able to sit down with him and just zoom out uh, on his whole career and also just him as a person and how he's evolved and how he has changed and how his relationship with change has changed. So let's do it. Let's welcome to Changes, Mark Ronson. Mark Ronson, thank you so much for being here on Changes. It's really nice to have you. It's great. It's great to be in this this new phase of Annie <laughs> Mac. I mean, we've spoke so many times and it's great to be a part of this. Thank you. The new phase of Annie Mac and maybe a little bit of the new phase of Mark Ronson too. Like it sounds like we've both kind of had a lot of changes in the last few years. First of all, congratulations on being a married man. Thank you. You are maybe the first person I spoke to right after I got engaged. I think I might have accidentally broke the news. <laughs> of the engagement on Radio 1 with you. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm happy for you, man. I'm really happy for you. Yeah, me too. And it is the evening of the Brit Awards, 2022. Neither of us are there. Did you even know? Neither of us are relevant in music at this particular (laughs) year. Just this year. um, (laughs) I'm planning a big comeback for 23 now. I guess my great memory of the Brit Awards is 2008 because... That was, you know, I got to do that performance with 
Adele, Daniel Merriweather, and Amy Winehouse. I mean, it's crazy, actually. I remember having to convince the Brits at the time that Adele was, like, great. And they're like, wow, she's kind of new and, like, nobody knows. It's, like, TV and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I I need to have her. Like, I'm not doing this without her. It's so crazy. And now, like, you know, she could literally, like, we know. It's Adele. It's Adele. It's Adele. (laughs) She's she's back at the Brits tonight, actually. Oh, she is the Brits? Oh, wow. Really? Really big deal, yeah. Oh, that's um, and I remember sitting in the front row just as a punter watching her do that classic "Someone Like You" performance as well. Oh so like, yes, mm. when the rain came down and it was all like I remember that too. That was incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we're happy to have you here, babe, and great to see that you're doing so well. We're here to talk about change and changes in your life, in your career, and we're going to kick it off with your biggest change in childhood. Let's go. I guess if I had to pick a really obvious one, it would be moving to the States when I was seven. I mean, that was a pretty seismic change. You know, you're sort of changing your entire surroundings, your life, your friends, the makeup, your family shifting. It's all these kind of things because my parents had split. So that one jumped out. What was life like before then? So you grew up in West London in Notting Hill, just down the road from where I am. What are your memories of that time? Um, Well, actually, I was born in St. John's Wood. At the Wellington right. Hospital, shout out the Wellington Hospital, <laughs> uh, North Wing, and I, uh, I had a nice childhood. I mean, I had like, you know, there was some craziness going on, but uh, you know, everything was sort of seemed okay till I was about five, and my parents split, and then right. my mom met someone who lived in the states, and she, even though he's English, and she was like, all right, kids, we're moving to the states my dad was like no you're not and they went to court and we moved to the states so uh yeah that's how it happened and like I was researching your life and my kid is now eight. Oh wow and I was trying to think what it would be like to kind of upend his life as he knew it and move him across the ocean how did you feel about it at the time were you happy were you excited were you not in it because my growing up was a little unorthodox I was pretty good at just making do with whatever the situation was for sure so I think going to New York I think my mom probably gave us like the good sell like it's going to be fun I'm going to buy you a Voltron robot, you know, whatever you need to tell an eight-year-old to keep them happy. And me and my sisters, who are two, they're twins. They're two years younger than me. And, and we and we went. And, you know, I love my stepdad. He was very sweet and warm. And he was like a musician in a successful band. It seemed like lots of fun. I love being around music and going on the tours and stuff with them. So I was down to make it work. Obviously, when you first get there, you know, kids of any age can be pretty, like, merciless with the teasing and so here I show up speaking like to them like I'm out of Oliver or something you know I'm like hi I'm Mark would you like to be my friend like to them they're just like what the fuck but I don't know you just fit in I made some pretty good friends early on and I probably just like started to sound American a lot faster than I was because I was like oh I need to do this to fit in you know and sure yeah uh, you know, there were other things like I didn't know shit about baseball or American football, all these things. I was like very, very far behind on that. And then I also wasn't very good at English football either. So that like everybody thought that I was going to be good at that. They picked me first for the team. And they're like, what are you good for? What are you good for? And that was it.
you mentioned your stepdad, Mick Jones, and you said he was English, but he lived in New York. Hugely experienced yeah. music producer, player, writer. What kind of influence was he on you as a kid in terms of his, his career and in music? It was a huge influence. And my dad was a really big influence, even though he wasn't a musician, but he worked in music. He worked in music publishing. He signed, the biggest thing he probably signed was Buck's Fizz when he yeah. was a publisher. Yeah. And then he managed, he discovered Andrew Rochford and managed Rochford and stuff. So yeah. I got my love of a lot of like soul music and that stuff. He loved, you know, typical English soul boy. He loved Motown and Stax and Steely Dan. And like, mm. I remember even hearing Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the message first from him. But when um, my mom married my stepdad, that was a different thing because now there's recording equipment and guitars and stuff in the house. And I'm hanging out at the studio till. You know, like one in the morning, which just probably had a lot to do with that environment becoming my happy place. Like I love being around watching when they would go in the other room in the live room to record a live take of the band and come back. And I, you know, my stepdad, I think he saw my love for it pretty early on. And he was playing me some mixes. I think they were working on this album, the one that had I Want to Know What Love Is On. And he played me a mix, probably thinking like, hey, what do you think of this? You like this song? And I was like, yes, but I do remember that the mix that you played me like a couple weeks ago, I think there was like, does the bass guitar line different or something like that? And he's like, jaw dropped. And he was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, I think then he really enjoyed playing me the stuff because like, I, he saw how much I, I really loved it and the detail. And I think you could just tell if you're a musician and you, that's what you do and you love, you can see it in a little kid that like if their eyes light up anytime they're around the thing and, he was very sweet in, in fostering that, that thing in me. Yeah. Can you remember as a kid, like a moment when you felt like music was a comfort to you? I definitely was like the kid, like if I got $20 for my birthday or something, the first thing I would do was go to Tower Records and buy like a bunch of 12 inches. Like I loved that already. Like mm. I, I definitely knew like it wasn't like going to get comic books or, or things like that. And then... Yeah, I mean, I remember, like, going in my bedroom when I was, like, angry, whatever, hormonal teenager, like, nobody understands me, and slamming the door and blasting Ramble On by Led Zeppelin or something like that. Mm. Like, I definitely, the, that comfort in music was, was, was there. Yeah, yeah. So getting that context of your background being in studios all the time, I know you DJed, you were a record collector, but when did you start trying to record music of your own or for other people? Yeah, well, actually, even before I started DJing, I played in a band in school, in high school, and we were like 15, 16, and we played and we wrote our own songs and made probably like a, a couple, you know, probably not that great demos. And I remember loving that process of like, because we had to get the cheap studio time, which was like really late at night, whether it's like 10 at night till six in the morning and going down there on the train and recording this demo with my band and, and being really fascinated with how the mixing desks worked and the EQs and what the engineer was doing. Mm. So I definitely, from a pretty young age, was was into writing and recording music, but then I got so into hip-hop and that scene in, in the early 90s in New York and it was such a great time because it was 
Black Moon, Wu-Tang, you know, all that stuff was just coming out. And, and so I started DJing because that was the thing, the way that I could be in this world that I love. I mean, that I'm so jealous that you were a teenager in the 90s in New York in that golden era and also kind of witnessing some of it in the clubs. Yeah, it was crazy because when I started, you're, you know, just a fan and I'm just lucky that at least I can turn on my radio and stretch Armstrong and Funkmaster Flex on just like right. anybody who was in New York. And then when I kind of made my name as a DJ a little bit as I was starting to come up like two or three years into it, then I'm in the clubs playing and it is Brand Nubian and Most Def and Jay-Z and Biggie and like the, this party that we used to do on Re, at Rebar, uh, this club on 16th and 7th, I remember one time, like, Biggie came. He'd already come a few times to that party. Where we had, it was a party on a Tuesday night. Biggie shows up pretty late, like, near clo closing. And I was like, oh, that's funny. I wonder why they came so late. And it turns out that he had been arrested and was in central booking and the minute that he made bail he just came so got released he came straight to the club you know like just it was amazing and, and i didn't know any of them i never met them i was just the guy in the booth spinning but uh it was it was amazing that they were you know picking my heroes the people that made the records i loved the most were coming to the parties that i was djing at that is deep that you dj'd for biggie that is so deep yeah, yeah he used to come up to the club with 20 dudes like rolling deep and would just come in but like never caused any trouble or issues I mean it was amazing I think he might have come in on his last birthday with Jay-Z I think they came on their last birthday and they were wearing matching white fedoras or something they had like dressed up a bit because it was somebody's birthday yeah. and they just looked so cool and I was like I was just there in the booth just like wide-eyed and just like you know just rocking the the floor. You know how the view go unbelievable. You've DJed all the way through your adult life, obviously, and um, have made an amazing... To the grave. <laughs> amazing career out of DJing. And then, obviously, production became huge as well. But, like, was there a point when you were producing when you realised that this was something you wanted to do forever? Yeah. I guess what happened was I always harbored these dreams of being a, a producer or at least making music. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it yet. And then, weirdly... The DJing took off. It wasn't something that I had ever thought, like, this is going to be my career, career, but it took off in such a way, and I loved it so much, and it was so much fun mm. that it eclipsed by a thousandfold my career as a producer, but I was still making beats, and any rapper I met at the club or a singer I might get introduced to, I'd be like, hey, you want to come to my house tomorrow, like, make some music, and um, and that's, that's what I would do. I'd just make 
demos and stuff with up and coming people. And I'm sure like, you know, my beats were probably kind of average in the beginning and these, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter when you're figuring it out, you're learning how to, to do it. But by DJing and making a name for myself, I started to meet, you know, more interesting people and people are coming to the club. And this guy, Dominic Trenier, this amazing guy who managed D'Angelo and had this label through Virgin said, I got this girl, Nika Costa, and she's on my label. And I don't know what her record's supposed to sound like, but I want it to sound like one of your DJ sets, the way you mix hip hop, old school, new school and Rufus and Shaka Khan. And then with like a little ACDC thrown in. And that's really how I got my first major production gig. And by that point, I got a little better. And then by working with Nika, and our and our husband Justin, who co-produced it, he, I I got a lot better while we were making that record. I never knew that the DJing was the link, the connect to that first job. Yeah, because it was like. I remember DJing Kanye's Grammy party for the second album, I guess, the uh, late registration. Mm. And I remember he, I was rocking it and he's like standing on the DJ booth or like nearby with the friends around. And he's like, this is Mark Ronson. Like whenever you see Mark Ronson on the turntables, like at one of my parties, you know, we're having the best time because he's and I, he was paying me such a compliment yeah. that in my mind I wanted to be where he was and taken seriously as a producer but so like I remember thinking like like I remember thinking like Kanye's playing me, paying me this huge compliment but actually inside I'm like damn no like I, I this is how far away I've gotten that like the guy who's doing what I want to do just sees me as this as DJ. A DJ but obviously wow yeah but, you know, like you can't get mad that somebody doesn't know you're a producer because you've never you haven't made a record anyone's heard. Like, it's just like, you know, so you have to just get there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we got there. You got there. I think we can all agree. Totally you there. pretty much got yeah. there. What have you learned about yourself in being a music producer over the years? I get to work with some, you know, pretty incredible people. I don't just mean like how famous or successful they are. I just mean like all these artists from... Yeba to Josh Homme, mm. Q-Tip to King Princess. These are like very touch, very smart, very in tune. In, in whatever way they're in tune. So you're always going to learn something being around those kind of brains. Uh, you know, and they're looking to learn something from you too some of the time. But oh, I'm a sponge. Like I'm still a sponge. Mm. So I'm always learning. I mean, if I had to say learn about myself, what do I know about myself? I think I'm a good listener. I think people feel safe uh, going into their feelings around me, which is a good thing to have if you're a producer because you're looking for people to be vulnerable in their music. Yeah, I think that's a thing a lot of people don't know about or think about when it comes to kind of the daily grind of being a music producer, it's actually quite emotionally taxing. And I know this because I'm married to one. Yeah. And he comes home at the end of the day and I'm like, babe, let's go out for dinner. I want to go see his friends. And he's like, no, I've just been around people yeah. all day. Like all I want to yeah. do is sit on my arse and eat dinner and like hang out with my family. That's me, I'm good. You know, a lot of the time there's people like he's never met he has to come in, make them feel at home, like, connect with them. As you say, make them feel comfortable so that they feel okay about pouring out their emotions, yeah. helping them figure out how to express those emotions, then building a mood around those emotions with them in the room. 
It's a lot. It's a lot, and it's it's it, when you when I work on my own records, it's like a little. It's a bit easier because it's like okay, I'm the captain of the ship. I get to be the you know the emotionally uh, yeah. sensitive, fragile person, or at least I'm the boss. But yeah, when you're working with somebody else on their record, you are like set to receive. You're an empath. You're there. It's like a, a child running around in a room and you're just there to constantly like catch them if they fall just uh, just to be and receptive to any idea they might have or to pull something out of somebody and to completely set yourself to their wavelength or their energy it's not what everybody has to do it's just the way that i've got the best results it's actually when you describe it like that exceptional practice for parenting for good parenting when you're supposed to put the kid first and just like react to them and follow them and let them lead it's that vibe isn't it yeah yeah so with that in mind like why do you think you're so good at it because you are good at it you know you've worked with the greats you've allowed amazing iconic albums to happen i think that there's two sides so i think i'm probably a good good listener and that kind of thing because i grew up in in a kind of like hectic a house where I was always trying to be the peacemaker probably and be the listener and maybe not uh, that that kind of thing. And then I th- also probably like there's something that could be a negative of that. Like it could be probably I'm sure a little bit people pleasing as well and that kind of thing where you just constantly want everybody to feel good and things to be okay. But some of that stuff has probably honestly served me well in, in my job as, you know, but I think it's about, as you become aware of those patterns, it's about distilling. It's like, okay, well, how much can I phase out this thing that's probably not that healthy? Because, you know, in the past few years, I've really done a lot of, I guess, work is the word, because the way that I was going and the level of drive and workaholism and all this stuff, what I was doing sure. to my life was just not, healthy and was no real way to live a life so you're like but also this is the thing that's got me here so how do I actually figure out what the bad habits are what the good ones and distill it so and then you just realize like actually those things like you can let go it's not like you're suddenly going to forget how to stop making music because you're just trying to be a bit more of a balanced human So when you say like the things that you are cutting out and changing in order to become more balanced, what are they? Like, because I noticed with you when I've worked with you in the past, you're always like nomadic from place to place to place to place. Yeah, I think, again, that was because work was by far the most important thing in my life. And probably thinking like, well, if I don't go to this place and I, I'm not in L.A. where the center of the musical universe is and then I'm not going to be there for that call that comes from blah, blah, blah. And, and also because work was this reliable well no matter what else happens in my relationships and all this thing work is always here for me and i think even becoming a producer for me was in some ways like coming up from the slightly you know just hectic and childhood that i had i think that i found this job where the description is like i am alone in a room and nobody can fuck with me or tell me what (laughs) what's going on you know it's like there's probably some kind of correlation between that as well so a big change has been moving back to new york it's funny that that's my big adult life change and my big uh childhood life change in a way even though i've only been back in new york for a, a year um yeah just there's some kind of decision that like instead of running around and chasing work and 
I'm going to set some roots and water the ground where I live as opposed to trying to just run and be afraid that if I'm not in the right place, I'm not going to you know, get the gig or whatever it is. It's such an amazing transition that when it happens, I think when you kind of take control, feeling like if you don't do the job, you're not going to be able to progress. The momentum will die off. People will stop caring. The work will stop. And then it's kind of redefining your idea of what success is. So it's this idea of success being accolades and bigger names and bigger lineups and bigger, bigger everything, up, 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 rather than success actually being stillness and your own sense of peace yeah. being a successful thing. Absolutely. And that was a thing moving back to New York because to the people listening, I mean, I'm sure in New York, it doesn't sound like I moved to like the middle of like Arkansas, but you know, for most people, who might not know, New LA is definitely the center of the musical. 92% of songwriters and artists and people all live out there in New York, which used to be such a, a vibrant place and always will be in some ways because it's New York yeah. and it's so inspiring, has been a little bit of a, you know, a, more of a wasteland for like music. But I'd rather, you know, live in the place where my like spiritual self and the thing is like feels most fulfilled and psyched to be in and not worry about the other stuff and just like make the best music uh, that I can. And how's it been since you've made that decision? Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> I can't. No one's answering the phone call. It's like they forgot I even lived ever. Um, got it. Uptown Funk was only it was only 2004. It's only eight years ago, guys. <laughs> Nothing breaks like I a wasn't heart. Was like to the Brits. What the fuck? I know. Come on, let me present like best like kazoo solo. I don't know. <laughs> um, no. So it's it's been amazing actually. It's hard because you know I love London and I was born there. My dad, my siblings, my stepmom. I have so much family. I care for it so much. And then even living in LA wasn't my favorite, but I have family there too. But I think I had to leave New York to realize how much. I am sort of a native New Yorker and and coming back over the past few years I was like oh my god this is it this is why I need to this is where I want to live hopefully for the rest of my life let's see So since being back, that's been great from that level. And even musically, you know, I'm back in the studio where this is, funnily enough, the place where I was in like 2005 to 2008. So where I first met Amy, like in this room, you know, this is where we did all of version. Sorry, it's rolling. I'm sorry, Charlie Murphy. I was having too much fun.
nobody gave a fuck who I was at all and I was just with Santi Gold and Daniel Merriweather and Lily Allen and just making records with friends so it's kind of nice to be back in this room where I was doing stuff in a very like creative prolific period where I had nothing to prove and was just making the stuff that I love because that's a good place to get back to when you're you know as I'm kind of working on this album right now and working on music and there are really interesting people from you know Travis Scott to Daniel Caesar to you know a lot of people like love New York again because it's like a it's like an underdog city and it's not where everybody is so people coming back here to make records and so I've, I've been enjoying that in my experience of interviewing people over the years there's always a kind of common thread to when a good song arrives in your experience is there patterns of when the good stuff arrives there's no pattern like in my experience it's always sneaks up on you and it's you could be doing the same thing that you've been doing for five hours you're just all jamming everyone's on the same instrument and then somebody does one little different thing that sparks you and like oh this is whoa and like this is better than what we're doing oh let's run with this for a minute or sometimes it could be as quick as like you play one chord and somebody sings a melody and you're like i love that like, like can we do that like it's just constantly having your antennas sort of open to these things that could come from the to sound right. all hokey, but from the universe at any moment. And the bigger songs I've been involved with have come in such different ways. But usually it's just when you're at this pure point of blocking out the universe, those thoughts about, is this successful? Will this be big? Does this sound like what's on the radio right now? And you're just like in this zone of like, you're just doing it because it's exciting to you. Mm. Yeah. So it's like creation for creation's sake. Yeah. I think what I was trying to get at is the idea of a song arriving out of thin air and you just having to be around in the right place to catch it that classic thing that a lot of people talk about like it just arrived yeah yeah (laughs) that's uh quincy jones i think his quote is something like i'm gonna butcher it but it's like it's no matter what's going on you always need to leave a little space to let god in the room or whatever that thing is for you so there's people that are really brilliant and can craft a pop song you hear these things that other like brilliant Swedish songwriters right and they have a little bit more formulas and rules and stuff but still like where those melodies come from there's something divine I don't know there's something really lovely and I'm not an ultra religious person at all Uptown Funk for example and Bruno is let's jam Bruno jumps on the drums he's like in a little closet with the drums we can't even see him but he's got headphones on (laughs) and jeff basker is on this synth and i'm just playing the bass and we're just playing the same thing the same groove for like three hours but it's so much fun and then we listen back and like oh that's fun wasn't that fun and then it's seven months of fine-tuning and nitpicking and getting the best clap sound and whatever else yeah, that is but yeah yeah so you you know you want you combine the inspiration with the perspiration for sure yeah yeah that's the bit i'm kind of in awe of is is the perspiration bit the intricacies of making a song sound incredible and the patience that you have to have to do that
No, yeah, I think it's like once you have that thing that feels special, the inspiration part, it's worth all the perspiration because I feel like somewhere out of nothing, I've got this brilliant, fun idea that like this deserves the best dressing in the world. Yeah. So that's what yeah, that yeah. is. You mentioned Yeba there. Yeba's been on this podcast herself. We had the most unforgettable conversation. There's been situations that you've been in with artists, Amy, Yeba, where the subject of what they're talking about is so seismic in terms of the emotional depth of what they're trying to put on record. It feels like overwhelming, mm -hmm. you know, even when she was talking about it. From your perspective of a producer, when you know you know, that someone's coming in with a story of heartbreak or addiction or grief or loss or whatever it is in the case. How do you approach that? There's no surefire way, there's a formula or a way that even that you're going to be right all the time. But I guess you're just, that's when it's to have some kind of, to have empathy, to, to just feel it out. Like, okay, how many takes is too many takes to make somebody sing over and over again this thing that obviously... And you're right. like, can you sing it's it painful. again? Is it okay? Like, yeah. it's the same way, actually, like, as a producer, even from a technical standpoint, you know, there's singers that like to do five, six, seven, eight takes. And if you're just trying to get that special performance, but you also don't want them to ever like to sing it one too many times where they like lose their because, confidence anymore. Like, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's always just, it's always just trying to read, you know, the atmosphere in the room and read that person. You mentioned New York as being like one of the biggest changes of your adult life, but you said in an answer, growing up. Yes. Talk to me. You're just I, always growing up. I think I'm proud of the growing up that I've done in the last three or four years. I figured out like a lot of, like, you know, whatever. My workaholism, whatever was leading me into kind of bad relationships, whatever else that all that stuff is. That's something that's made a very, very significant change in my life. But like, I don't think that you're ever, you're never done getting better as a human and becoming a better person or trying to improve yourself. I think if you had asked me that question three years ago, I think if you'd asked me what the most important moment of my adult life would have been, I would have gone to like a career answer. I would have said meeting Amy Winehouse or, you know, sure. meeting yeah. whatever, hooking up with Bruno Mars, not hooking up, hooking up, but, you know, meeting <laughs> Bruno. We know. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and now I'm like, yes, those things are really important too, but maybe, but definitely not at a point anymore where, you know, that something that happened in my career would be the most important thing because I'm married to this person is just so incredible and so wonderful and amazing and like I needed to sort of like grow up and stop being uh, a man child boy baby so I could like find this person I hate when people start talking about all the work and the therapy and the things and the programs that they've done because it just it always makes me just go like all right no man. but no I think it's helpful yeah but but for me I, I do have to say like I would be disingenuous if I didn't say that that's the stuff that's helped me really a lot. 
therapy, reading, discovery, just that shit. Just trying to be like, how do I become a better person? How do I learn about human condition? All those things. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And did you find, Mark, that your way of life meant that you felt like people were passing you out in terms of growing up? And, and I mean this not specifically to you, but just in terms of the career that you chose, where it's very easy to stay young and you can be celebrated for being reckless and young and irresponsible. And, you know, the idea of growing up in pop music is sometimes frightening if you've you know made your living and made your career out of working with young people and having the lifestyle of youth culture yeah you could go on and i think the thing with um music is you do form these intense very fast families with these artists that you work with especially if you're working with like really fun charming charismatic people like if i worked at a desk job somewhere in IT like I might have got my shit together a little bit faster because I wouldn't have had this other thing to be like well I don't, maybe I don't need a family or get myself together because I have so much fun in this other part of my life anyway but mm. I realize I do want a family and I need to do the things that are going to get me that but yeah I think that I could keep going on and being um trying to be Peter Pan or something but I think I just I'd rather come home at 8 p.m to somebody that I love and and have to be like okay well let somebody else do the partying from now on mm, I mm. DJed the other night till like 3.30 in the morning it was such a good night and I, I hadn't DJed in a New York club in so long obviously because of the pandemic and other but other reasons and I was like god this is like what got me through my entire 20s like I love records I love making people dance I love New York for that shit when you're like in a good spot with the dance floor and I was like, maybe I just need to start doing this like oh, at least twice a month. And then like 3.15 came around and then you're trying to get out of the spot and you have to take the elevator down and then get in and then somehow creep into bed with your wife and not wake her up and then know that you're going to wake up at seven anyway to walk the dogs. I'm like, who am I kidding? Like, I can't, there's no way I could do this like tw twice a month anymore. Like, this is going to ruin my Sunday. Um, I was I was thinking I, while you were saying that I was like three thirty. God, that's really late. Like that's fucking late. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. 
A late oh night for me God. is watching Dope Sick until like till eleven twenty five now. Listen, we love Dope Sick. I've just finished it. But I, I had the same epiphany like when I had kids because I would be literally DJing. And thinking about what the fuck to put in the school lunch the next day. Yeah. And I'm like, this isn't fair. I'm not serving you. Like, I should be like on a level, yeah. hammered, like all of that. For me, the transition between being that DJ who kind of stayed up and did the after parties and came home with two hours sleep and trooped on to being someone who was a mom and had no choice but to like behave and, yeah. you know was a really hard one and a long one, but actually one that I feel weirdly in all of my career, one of the most proud of. Yeah. Because I remember being in clubs when I used to work in Belfast in, in Shine and um, seeing DJs come and be sober. Like these older guys, you know, it would be Green Velvet or, you know, Andy Weatherall or whatever, amazing DJs. And they'd come and not drink. And I'd be yeah. like, who are, who are these yeah. guys? Like, what, are they, what, what, what the hell? And now I'm like, God, I w- like, I'm, I'm so proud that I reached this point in my career that I can do this and enjoy it. Yeah. And be all right about it. Yeah, Saturday, same thing. I think when I played the other night at Le Ban, this club in New York with Ellie Escobar, it was such a great night. And I was like, wow, this might be the first time I played a whole set in a new york club like not at a festival or stuff i've done those sober but that i've really just yeah. like haven't had a drink the whole night this is yeah this is crazy but testament to how much you like your job you know that yeah. you don't need it yeah and now i'm like i even the thought that like one mix might be a little bit sloppy because i was just like a bit too loosey-goosey i just like i don't want that i care much more about I have a bit more pride and also when you're playing five nights a week in clubs, you can go on autopilot because you just know sure. it. You can bang out every sure. mix. You know what's going to kill. Now I'm right. just like, you know, I'm like dainty. Just with the <laughs> thing. Dainty DJ. Dainty. Okay, so Mark Ronson, what is the change you would still like to make or see for yourself moving forwards? It sounds so hokey, but I'd like to be a better person in the way of being more empathetic, kinder, generous. I know I can do all these things. I know that I, you know, it's, it's, I try to be a good person already, but I know like it's, I have plenty of ego and pride and vanity and all that stuff that gets caught up in it too. So I think just it's just a constant sounds so fortune cookie but just a constant journey like i don't just mm. to get journey i definitely didn't need to use that word it's just like <laughs> you it's it's like a, you know that you're an organism like you're constantly shedding skin you're evolving you're growing like i just feel like you know i'm just just trying to do that yeah do you think your relationship to change has changed over the years in terms of how you see it yes because i think change i was so work focused and just like everything was in career and perception and these sort of things that change to me meant like on the escalator of success change meant like the next record's more popular or awards or recognition or accolades or a sex swing in my garden no (laughs) but i thought that um yeah and now change just means becoming maybe a better person and also you know family is really the next thing that i'm very much um looking forward to well you have 
decades of experience parenting as such people in the studio and helping them to feel comfortable and get the most out of them. So I have no doubt that you'll be an amazing father, Mark, whenever you choose to do that. This is my first son, Yabba Gaga Stone Age Killer. <laughs> I'm very excited to see what your child's going to be called. I think I'll maybe I'll let my wife, Grace, she can do yeah. name. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this and chatting with us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Mark Ronson, what a lovely conversation that was to have with him and just to remember some golden moments in music as well that he kind of lived through and was instrumental in. I would like to recommend you another episode of Changes if that's okay. I mentioned Yeba in that combo with Mark. Yeba is a remarkable artist. She's only at the start of her career. Um, and Mark produced her debut album, which came out last year, I think. Um, but just as her career was taking off, she lost her mother to suicide. And I had a totally unforgettable conversation with Yeba about her childhood growing up in the church, about the loss of her mother and that, how that affected her career and herself. Um, and how you managed to put all that and funnel it into music. Um, yeah, she is the most spiritual person. Um, it's one of my favourite episodes of Changes I've ever done. So we'll put the link to the episode in there if you want to go check. That's Yeba on Changes. And next week, we are talking to one of my favourite authors of the last 10 years. His name is Douglas Stewart. He is a Booker Prize winner for his excellent debut novel, Shuggy Bane, uh, and he has experienced huge changes in his life. After losing his mother to alcohol addiction as a child and being bullied for being gay, he went on to study fashion at the Royal College of Art in London, moved to New York City to work for one of the biggest fashion brands in the world, and has since become one of the most successful authors uh, around today. So talk about turning life around, embracing change. Douglas Stewart is incredibly inspirational in next week's episode of Changes. So this one was produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thank you so much for listening as always and see you next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.